2: There has to be some way of imagining democratic equality that doesn't sidestep historically derived differences.
3: From Brandeis University,
1: welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast that looks backwards to see into the future. Our idea is to assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events by looking at books that shaped the world we inherited. Today, the hosts are John Plotz, professor of English from Brandeis. Hello, John. And we are joined by Ajanta Subramanian. And the topic for today will be meritocracy and privilege in higher education. Ajanta is professor of anthropology and South Asian studies at Harvard University. Her first book, Shoreline, Space and Rights in South India, published in 2009 by Stanford University Press, chronicles the struggles for resource rights by Catholic fishers on India's southwestern coast. Her new book is called The Cast of Merit, Engineering Education in India, and it was published in 2019 by Harvard University Press. In it, she studies students and alumni of the Indian Institutes of Technology, focusing on questions of meritocracy and democracy in India in order to understand the production of merit as a form of caste property and its implications for democratic transformation. So Ajanta, could you start and tell us a little bit about the project, what inspired you to do it, and maybe a little bit what the fieldwork was like?
2: Sure. So this I want to say that this project has been in the making for most of my life (laughs) because I've been surrounded by engineers for most of my life, Mm -hmm. many of whom are members of my own family, and have been told repeatedly, especially by opinionated uncles, uh, that my choice of anthropology Mm -hmm. was a frivolous one. Mm -hmm. And I was only able to make it because my father worked in international development and was mm-hmm. able to afford me the luxury of pursuing whims. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Right. So I was always and not kind of, a real study. And like not a real said. study. Yeah. So and that, you know, and that so sort of implied in that was both that the social sciences weren't weren't real. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that they were sort of flimsy. Very familiar to uh, me. <laughs> so they were flimsy forms of knowledge. But also that I didn't have to think about my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that because my my father had left India and was mm-hmm. a dollar earner mm-hmm. that I you know didn't have to think in terms of social mobility okay. right so um, I mean I've so I think that this irritation uh, mm-hmm. at, at being sort of dismissed so easily mm-hmm. uh, was always sort of with me mm-hmm. um so would you say this book is retaliating <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> but but I also think it was just... Um, being exposed to an inc- an incredibly shrill politics around merit mm-hmm. in India, um, and especially the kind of backlash against expanding affirmative action um, within the technical sciences, mm-hmm. um, so that's something else that I was privy to for you know, decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming to Harvard, uh, where you know the language of merit is all around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there are sort of assumptions about individual talent and desert mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that totally sort of sidestep the question of structural inequality mm-hmm. and inherited advantages and disadvantages. So I think the combination of all of these things um, sort of led me to the book. I suppose mm-hmm. the, the the kind of biggest argument of the book um, is that claims to merit are expressions of upper casteness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean that meritocracy as a politics is an identitarian politics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And
0: and merit and then, gets marked how in this, like in your case study, is this is through IIT. Is that the
2: yeah? So so the 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 site where I uh, did the study was a set of institutions called the Indian Institutes of Technology, which are sort of the cream of undergraduate mm-hmm. education in India, and especially mm-hmm. undergraduate technical education. Uh, they're uh, impossible to get into. Um, mm-hmm. It there's a there's an annual exam every year where you know up to a million uh, people uh, you know take the exam and under three percent get in. So it's mm-hmm. like an incredibly competitive ordeal. Mm-hmm. And aren't um, there
1: like billboards and things I mean, yeah, posting the I mean, no- yeah, winners exactly. and stuff? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean,
2: these institutions are a household word. They're a kind of proven means to professional advancement mm-hmm. and. Social mobility, so and 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 they're also seen as these kind of havens of meritocracy, mm-hmm. right? uh, Within uh, a national education system which is kind of um, mediocre, you know, which uh, which fails its students, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. this these institutions are seen as holding out the kind of the promise of yeah. uh,
1: mm-hmm. uh, of true merit, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And they're public institutions. They're right? public institutions big difference with some of the most, the institutions regarded as elite in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They're
2: public institutions, but highly, highly selective public
1: institutions,
2: right?
0: right? So, and are they understood as democratizing? Like, is there a rhetoric that goes back to the founding of the state or, or not that far that has, that sees them as part of a democratizing project or?
2: So in general, technical education is seen as democratizing, uh-huh. right? So, you know, from from the early 20th century on, and especially after independence, um, you had this—you had massive state investment in technical training yeah. uh, as as a kind of corollary in the education field of this broader commitment to technologically yeah. driven yeah. Uh, modernization, mm-hmm, right? right. Uh, so, I mean, there was an explosion of institutions um, post independence, but interestingly, this one set of institutions, the IITs, were always set apart mm-hmm. from this kind of larger um, impetus to democratize access to higher education, right? Yeah. So they were seen as exceptional, right? Mm-hmm. They were set apart as institutions of excellence. And this is this is actually what they were called, institutions of excellence, of national excellence. Mm. Um, and there's this amazing quote from Nehru um, in the sort of early days when, you know, the the pros and cons of creating this new hyper exclusive tier of mm-hmm. public institutions is yeah. being debated in the parliament, and he said, you know, uh, that that uh, unf- I, 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 this is a paraphrase, but something along the lines of, you know, uh, democracy is a good thing, but uh, unfortunately, it can lead to me- mediocrity,
3: mm-hmm. right? Right. So,
2: right? and that there there are certain spaces which should be set apart from the equity mandate, right? Right. should be set apart as spaces of excellence. Right. Right. So these were always seen as exceptional, right? Mm -hmm. So public, but exceptional. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Public, but exclusive. No, it it makes
0: me wish I knew the French example better because I feel like in France they're similar. They have the the kind of plucked universities. I mean, Uh there's a large state access, like you said, I mean, funded by the state, but, that there are this, you know, the sites of selection as well. Right. But I mean, I, I'm sure in America we can think of a hundred ways that the parallel plays out too. I yeah. Mean, you think about the earlier tradition of the Ivy Leagues
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: something like MIT, which yeah, mm-hmm. is a yeah. technology institute, but on mm-hmm. the other hand, it also somehow exists in that same and world. And
1: also those so-called public
2: Ivies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. right exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And even within the big, uh, public university systems there's always like the flagship institution right, right. which is seen yes. as more excellent than yes. the rest yes right? yeah.
1: and just to complete the sort of uh, description of your argument yeah. most of the people who end up in the IITs are brahmin
2: not brahmin but upper caste okay um, which is a kind of broader category right right um so yeah so one of the ways that this set of institutions was kind of set apart from you know, the larger sort of project of equalizing access to education was they were exempted from caste-based affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Um, So until, you know, so so through the first two decades after their founding, Mm -hmm. um, there was no affirmative action at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Whereas there was for other universities.
2: Whereas there were for even the very next tier of Mm -hmm. institutions, Mm -hmm. right? And I mean, the thing I should say is that um, unlike the next tier of institutions, many of which were Regionally administered, so they were administered at the regional level. Mm-hmm. This set of institutions was centrally administered, so mm-hmm. they came under the purview of the federal government, not like the regional state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the regional quotas for lower caste that existed did not apply to the mm-hmm. set of institutions, right? And mm-hmm. so they were set apart from affirmative action, and so you know, it had the obvious result of uh, making the student body um, overwhelmingly both upper caste and. Mean, also upper middle class although there, there were some exceptions mm-hmm. um but this in the, in the 1970s the central government did introduce one set of quotas for the lowest tier um mm-hmm. of social groups so mm-hmm. the scheduled castes who are now called the dalits mm-hmm. and the scheduled tribes um
3: mm-hmm. uh
2: but you know those sort of overall state of education was such that, you know, they rarely filled those quotas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and it was only in the 1990s um, and 2000s that uh, new quotas were introduced for the intermediate rung of caste. Mm-hmm. Who might, They're in fact, be more population. likely to actually right, end exactly, up in the... exactly, exactly. Oh, who were actually much more of a threat <laughs> right, right. Right, to yeah. kind of upper caste hegemony of these institutions. Right.
0: So can I ask you to gloss like, I wonder, one of my favorite sentences in this awesome book is you say that the leveraging of merit must be seen as an expression of upper caste identitarianism that attempts to forestall progress towards a more egalitarian society and derives its legitimacy from a larger global politics of ascription. And I kind of want to go back to larger glo- global politics because yeah. I think that is a really interesting yeah. place to think yeah. about the US situation. But can you just talk about the leveraging of merit, which I feel like that's a crucial idea for you yeah. and I'd love to hear you say more about that.
2: Yeah. So I mean this this is fam- this must be familiar to, you know, people who are not familiar with India that merit becomes this way of uh claiming one's successes you know be they educational or professional as the product of hard work right right? of hard work of talent individual ability certain kinds of sort of innate qualities Mm -hmm. right Right. um so merit becomes a way of bracketing structural considerations altogether Right. right so one of the things that's so evident at these institutions, and also in, gen, in in India more generally, is every time there's a kind of claim on a previously kind of exclusive institutional space, mm-hmm. right? Whether mm-hmm. it's the state, you know, so the state bureaucracy, or, you know, higher educational institutions, the pushback is typically in the language of merit, right? Mm-hmm. We have to preserve merit at all costs, mm-hmm. right? That to... Um, to allow access to new groups, um, to uh, you know, to, to allow them entry on on different grounds, right, mm-hmm. uh, would be to undercut an incredibly important democratic right. principle, right? Mm-hmm. And the democratic principle is yeah. the principle of meritocracy. So that yeah. makes
0: total sense to me. But can you say more about the leveraging of merit must be seen as an expression of upper caste identitarianism? Yeah. Because I think naively, I think of identitarianism as deliberately embraced a script of identity. As, as, as explicit. Yeah, okay. as explicit. Whereas what you're describing sounds yeah. to me like a... Pro- yes, it's a it's kind a of misrecognition yeah. or a proxy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah.
2: so, I mean, I should say that I don't know what the response to this book is going to be, mm-hmm. but I expect that the thing that my interlocutors will hate the most mm-hmm. um, is is being called cast subjects. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they'll care at all about the leveraging part. Yeah, right. Because you know they believe that the world is one of competition. Right. right? Uh, that groups. Um, you know, are in a tussle with other groups and you use whatever means there are at your disposal to get it. That idea, I think, would be fine with them. Mm -hmm. What I think they would object to is being seen as expressing caste identity Mm -hmm. through those forms of of leveraging. Mm -hmm. Um, So they do see themselves as a kind of corporate unit, Mm -hmm. right? But the corporate identity is an institutional one. Mm-hmm. They right. see themselves as IITans mm-hmm. or a, or a kind of occupational one. They see themselves as engineers. So they're all mm-hmm. these they're all these corporate forms Brand of identity mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. are completely comfortable with. Yeah. But caste, I think, yeah. is one that they 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 actively uh-huh. disavow. Right. And they don't they don't disavow it yeah. as as culture. So what I mean by that is, so if I if I ask them, you know, what's your caste background? I think many of them would. Would say what it is, right? Mm-hmm. But to see it as a structural advantage yeah. is something that they would strongly object to. But so is there right? then
0: a language, is there a kind of implicit tokenism then? Well, there, where they will cite an example of some friend of theirs, a fellow IIT who didn't get in. No, who's mm-hmm. not of their cast. Like in other words, there's Joe, oh, who's mm-hmm. a Dalit. Or oh, whatever.
2: absolutely. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Because um, I feel like that's a, in America, you know that 19th, you know my black move, yeah. my black friend, right. Right. you know, like yeah. we remember that you know, that's like a sitcom
2: move. Yeah, me, you
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but
2: here, I mean, it's it's interesting because I more than that, there's a kind of claim that cast was invisible to them, at least within mm-hmm. the space of the institution, and that this is something that again sets the IITs apart from the rest of. Mm-hmm. Society, you don't, like while you, you don't you see cats while, while you're in while it because we're all Europeans, engineers. We're all just like yeah. of a piece, being smart yeah, right? right? We're just all being smart together, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that you leave behind all of these unfortunate right, right. Yeah. Uh, carryovers from a kind of pre-modern past.
1: Right. You right. leave those all behind when you enter the space of the institution mm-hmm. and you're right. kind of remade. Right? And does this make, is the idea that that sort of makes people kind of on the springboard to global citizenship, like they're... Well, global, but also national. Okay, both. Like there's
2: yeah. something really important yeah. about a national project of uh-huh. transcending caste, right? To but then a... how is that identitarianism?
0: That's I think I still don't get that. Because that feels like it's a... I mean, it structurally might legitimate people in upper caste position you know you can still ben- you benefit from your status yeah. but doesn't identitarianism isn't identitarianism pre- predicated on positively ascribing, uh, positively claiming. claiming belonging or yeah
2: so Stuart hall has this interesting argument about yeah. uh race not always speaking in its own language mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that there are other descriptors um other forms of Sort of proxy uh, discursive markers, discursive self-marking uh-huh. that stand in for race, right? Uh-huh. And and you recognize it as race yeah. based on what it is arrayed against, right? Yeah. So in this instance, you know, this kind of corporate identity is 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 not just leveraged as a means to you know whatever accumulation, advancement, etc. Yeah. It's also pitted against something, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the the thing that it's pitted against is lower caste, yeah. right? So it's a kind of disidentification mm-hmm. with yeah, yeah. this other corporate group. And it's that kind of binary formulation of what one is that allows you to see that this is in fact a form of upper castness, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so that kind of the oppositional framing is super important, right? right? Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where you, that that's what kind of calls the lie to this as non-identitarian, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, they they use a, a universalistic language yeah. you know, mm-hmm. to describe themselves, but it's also one that's antithetical to certain other groupings, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of yeah. Where so it's you in the positioning. It's in that, the position yeah. vis a vis uh-huh. other yeah. groups, who of course they charge with being identitarian, right? Yeah. Right. Right. So yeah. I mean and it's a similar thing with. Um,
0: which is why you think they'll react strongly against it. Yes. Because you think they will say, oh, no, that's what my opponents are doing. But yeah, I'm this is not, not what we're doing. That's not yeah. what I'm yeah.
2: doing. Yeah. I'm, yeah. 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 In fact, we're against caste. Yeah. Right? right. Um, yeah. And we're against a politics of caste. Right.
1: Um, yeah. So, one of the things that's very um, exciting about the argument is the way that it mobilizes other kinds of languages about other kinds of categories. Maybe especially whiteness. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you talk about upper casteness, which I think is your term, right? It's it's my awkward mm-hmm. neologism, right? But that no, is I think it that works. kind of right. It's in order to invoke whiteness, whiteness right? Exactly. That it processes, right. and you talk about it as property and as a possessive accumulation. So you're sort of drawing on these other conversations yeah. about whiteness, yeah. and this to a non-Indianist, non-specialist in India um maybe especially an anthropologist but probably more broadly is really interesting because caste is often thought of as being you know radically different from race on the one hand sure. and yeah. uh, class sure. on the other yeah. and you're sort of showing the com- complex ways in which it um is in which its sort of mechanism is the same yeah mm-hmm. so i don't know if you want to say yeah, more about that
2: yeah yeah i mean this is i think um and i'm certainly not the only one who's done this lots of people have argued for Making caste more obviously comparable mm-hmm. right, to yeah. other uh, systems of social stratification, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. caste is so often kind of seen <laughs> as as the. <coughs> of Indian cultural difference. Right. You know, something that is so particular right. Right. that it
1: can't be compared or discussed mm-hmm. alongside yeah. anything or it's, else. Or it, yeah. it can only be compared on the basis of its radical difference. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, As a kind of foil. Yeah.
2: I, mean, I teach a course called Race and Caste and uh, it's very interesting. All of the kind of non-Indian, non-South Asian students in the class mm-hmm. were initially very nervous um, about the caste mm-hmm. literature that we mm-hmm. were covering because they assumed that it was it would it would never be familiar to them
1: right Mm -hmm.
2: and and my and the structure of the course was such that they they were forced to think them together right Right. so like every module was on a a certain topic like the plantation where okay Uh you see how the plantation as a technology has produced both caste and race Mm -hmm. and you know and then the senses has produced both caste and race and so yeah nice yeah. yeah Anyway, so.
0: so in that class, do you have a configuration for the triangle that Elizabeth alluded to, like caste,
2: class. class,
0: and yeah, and race? Yeah.
2: I mean, part of the point of the class is to insist that one of the reasons caste and cla- caste and race are comparable, yeah, is because of um, a history of capitalist transformation, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So, um, caste and class. Um, I mean, caste and race were, uh, you know, were sort of instruments for the expansion of an imperial political economy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's important. To and think a naturalization about classforma- of difference
1: that is um, smooths that process.
2: Yeah, but also that one cannot think about class formation. Mm-hmm. outside of these other right. categories right mm-hmm. so when you think about class formation in a place like india or class formation in the united states mm-hmm. you know it was always rooted through these sort of so-called ascriptive categories right yeah. of race and caste so yeah. right. So class was never something that operated in isolation from. So it's it's less Mm -hmm. a kind of argument about intersectionality because intersectionality still keeps these things as like separate structures that then interact. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm saying that you know, class formation is inherently a caste process. Yeah. Right. you,
1: you can't think about yeah. it outside of caste. Good,
0: I hope you said that. Because, yeah, it seems yeah. like a good connection
1: to privilege. Yeah, this seems right? like yeah. a good moment yeah. uh, to introduce our second text, which is really bringing to the forefront these kinds of com- comparisons. Yeah. Um, the text is by Seamus Kahn. It's, it's called Privilege, the Making of an Adolescent Elite at St. Paul's School, and it was published in 2011 by Princeton. Um, and, uh, Khan was a student at St. Paul's. Uh, he's also a South Asian American. Mm -hmm. Um, and he then became a teacher as a sociologist. So he was a teacher at St. Paul's, um, but it was understood that he was doing his sociological study of St. Paul's as part of it. And he makes a really interesting argument about, about a kind of shift in the way in which privilege is, um, mobilized. Over the past, I can't remember exactly, the few decades, let's say, yeah. mm-hmm. right? um, since probably he was a student. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it isn't even that long. No, it's not right. that I was long. Talking about yeah. Like yeah, yeah, perhaps yeah. twenty years. Yeah, yeah.
2: I
0: was going to say thirty years seems like long to me. I, yeah, I think maybe it might so. be a lot shorter than maybe that. Maybe shorter. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um,
0: Data from the publication although I feel like even by Psycho the eighties it was yeah.
1: sort of starting. Yeah. Um, but. Greed, anyhow. Is, greed is good. Yes, um, good. Yeah. Well, and the I mean specifically this shift from sort of privilege as being marked by the kind of boundaries that you can keep mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the way that you can keep people out.
3: Yeah.
1: Um from a much more kind of in some ways immediately seemingly appealing mode of privilege, but also maybe more insidious because of that which is sort of privilege as this ease of being able to go anywhere, right? Like Mm -hmm. now you don't have to buy stuff from Brooks Brothers. You can buy stuff from Target. But it's your ability to buy stuff from Target and Brooks Brothers that kind of marks you as privileged. Yeah. Um, Can I
0: just quote his three lessons of privilege? Because they seem so... So great. Yeah, yeah, they're great and yet they're so paradoxical. But okay, so the three lessons are one, hierarchies are natural and can be used to one's advantage. Two... Experiences matter more than inha- innate or inherited qualities, which is <laughs> so worth unpacking. And three, the way to signal your elite status to others is through ease and openness in all right. social contexts. I- inequality is ever present, but elites now view it as fair. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So ease and openness, yes, but not democratic level. Right. Right. So right. you get exactly. to go everywhere, yeah. but you go everywhere across difference.
1: Yeah, and you're, yeah. and there's a differential. Distribution of the ability to go everywhere.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he right. talks
2: about seeing hierarchies as ladders you can climb. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And and this idea that you know that, that everyone has opportunity, right, stands in for a true commitment to equality, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So opportunity takes the place of equality.
1: Right. 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 Yeah. And I mean, to me, it seems sort of an extension, or a like it's more it's making the language of merit even more flexible. Right. Because it's sort of, it makes it into this kind of traveling quality that isn't just linked to um, what used to be called breeding or accent yeah. or, yeah. you know, all these yeah. kinds of things. Yeah.
2: And um, that's, and that's partly the alibi, right? Um, right. Mean, as he says, yeah. St. Paul's has changed, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, it does, it looks, it looks more like the world mm-hmm. um, or like the nation, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, Except, you know, you scratch the surface and you realize that, you know, in terms of class, for instance, right uh, there is still uh, a uniformity yep. you know, to who is able to come, right. Right? right? But it's this, it's this idea that, you know, the doors are now open mm-hmm. uh, and people can come in and that, um, and that the new kind of uh, outsiders, right, mm-hmm. are, are the ones from these, these old elite families, right? Mm-hmm. The ones who think that they're simply entitled to St. Paul's because right. uh they're legacy admits. I mean they're the ones who are now seen as as not
1: embodying yeah, the spirit sort of, of deeply the institution, right. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? But then the other part of it is, yes, it may look like more like the nation, and there may be even be some class diversity but the experience of St. Paul's is it's radically different, different for those different mm-hmm. students, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And the ways in which they are made to feel like they belong or not.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So by the end, I mean, you you see that um, working class kids and non white kids um, aren't able to inhabit that ease right. in the same way, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and especially if if they insist on um, keeping their own backgrounds in the foreground <laughs> right Right. Um, you know uh, they're seen as somehow sort of intransigent right right,
1: right. um there's yeah. an interesting um anthropological article um about diversity as a resource on college campuses yeah. and it's sort of connected to this right it's like the the working class and students of color who are there are sort of they are partly to be mobilized not yes. necessarily to mobilize themselves right, right? right. so if mm-hmm. they don't kind of play that role effectively then there yeah. are costs yeah.
2: yeah yeah so this one black girl that he writes about mm-hmm. is is somewhat friendless because mm-hmm. you know she's so aware of you know all the people from her neighborhood who aren't at saint paul's right, right? Even as her presence is being celebrated, she's so acutely aware of how exclusionary the space actually is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And no one wants to be minded. of that. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, well, I, yeah. I think and that I, wasn't supposed I, to be her job. Right. by Coming there, supposed right? To be her job. I think
0: <laughs> I plugged this book before, but that Anthony Jack book about <laughs> yeah. the privileged poor. I think yeah. it's fascinating yeah. about that. Just like kind of giving that as a sort of more granularity to that way that you can arrive and then serve the purpose of yes. being a yeah. kind yes. of diversity for others' benefit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I feel like the in, the uh, the insight about access is not the same as equality. Is is mm-hmm. the crucial one there?
2: I mean the, the I guess the difference is that he's really emphasizing this discontinuity between um a kind of older cohort, right? Mm-hmm. And this kind of newer group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I don't um I was I was thinking about whether that uh, applied to the IITs and I think it does and it doesn't, mm-hmm. you
1: know? Um, well, here's where I think the public character of the institution and its sort of part of being sort of created as part of a national project makes a difference, right? Yeah. That was not what St. Paul's was no. invented for. No, no,
2: no, um, no. But also that the, the, the hmm. majority of was always supposed the to educate the sons IITans. of the
1: elite, right? Right. Like that was what it was for.
2: Right. And But here the majority of the IITans are actually... and this is part of their claim to merit, is that they're not from um, the industrial elite or mm-hmm. the business elite or, or even necessarily the landed elite. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, these are the children of civil servants, mm-hmm. right? Um, these are people who really kind of uh, entered the professional class through the state, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they are beneficiaries of... Right. Of state developmentalism, right? Whether in the colonial or post colonial period. Um, But they're upper caste. So, this combination of being upper caste Mm -hmm. and middle class, I think, Mm -hmm. makes for a different story than the one that um, Seamus Khan is telling, Mm -hmm. right? That's Mm right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, perhaps we should shift to recallable books. Does that seem like a good moment? It does, but
0: actually, can I just... look? I just have one... I have such an inchoate question, so you guys can give a sharp answer to a dumb question, which is that I... In terms of the temporality of yeah. the disjunction here, I'm still trying to think about how this relates to kind of the most current rise of ethno-nationalism. Yes, yeah. And, I mean, I heard you mention Trump really quickly, yeah. but I was just thinking about, you know, obviously there's a way in which certainly the Privilege book fits into uh, a narrative about, you know, some of the internal contradictions of, about, of neoliberalism, right? Yeah, so that's sure. an account that goes back to the 80s because it's about Reagan and it's about yeah, the sure. rise of a kind of you know, global meritocracy that refuses to name its own class status or yeah. something like that. But here we are, you know, we're probably 10 years into yeah. some different habitus or some different right. ethos. So how does this, how how does the argument fit into that? Like you talk about, you know, you talk some about, you know, the rise of nationalism in, in, in the Indian context. Yeah. Um, you know, so can we talk about like that whiteness and upper castness? As, yeah, yeah. As distinctly new. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, I I do... I mean, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is say that uh, this kind of comfortable way of inhabiting a kind of universal subjectivity, right, a kind of unmarked status, mm-hmm. um, that that um, that is increasingly cha- the ability to do that yeah. mm-hmm. is is increasingly challenged by oppositional movements, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whether they are low caste movements in India or. Mm-hmm. Um, minority, you know, minority rights movements, et cetera, in the U.S., mm-hmm. yeah. right? So there's a way that you know, uh, the kind of the universal subject is exposed as actually being marked, mm-hmm. right? right, and being marked by caste or race, or right. Um, and so, what happens when, when, when that, yeah. you when know, that challenge is posed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the, the what, what happens is that suddenly, um, the a, a kind of commitment to liberal universalism. Phrase mm-hmm. right, uh, and there's a kind of uh, there's a retreat right uh, into a much more kind of defensive posture mm-hmm.
1: right, and a much more explicit claim to identity yeah right. So, but that does not seem to be what's happening at in Kant's book. They seem to be doubling this, down on on, on the
2: liberal individualism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, How long? If he wrote it, I mean, it was published in 2011. So let's mm-hmm. say the work was 2008. It, like yeah, if I'm he wrote ju- it now, I would be it curious. Be
2: I would yeah. be curious um, whether there's yeah. a, there would be a difference now, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I do think <laughs> there's been this kind of like. Uh, uh, a a, ret- a return to a much more kind of explicit claim mm-hmm. right. um, to racial or caste superiority. Yeah. But it's not the old racial or caste superiority because it's still kind of blended with notions of meritocracy. Right? Yeah, um, right. So... Um,
0: and you see that return as a cultural outgrowth of responses to minoritarian I do. movements I so do. Mm-hmm. So, it's in, so it's explicitly sort of provoked by this egalitarian right. possibility absolutely yeah yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. I mean I, I think it's a kind of uh the more the push to share the pie and not just yeah. be benevolent patrons right right, right. and, the to, more and, there's and a to kind of
1: not be the ones who set the terms of how the pie is shared yeah yeah, right. yeah. the more there's this kind of return
2: and then which which begs the question of where is this all heading? <laughs> right yeah. like right. if that's the response you know is there any possibility for a kind right. of a shared politics mm-hmm. right yeah. um which is actually about egalitarianism mm-hmm. right um and not just the recognition of multiple differences or whatever it is yeah. um mm-hmm. and i um and i do i don't know i mean i i do think that there's uh, there has to be some way of imagining democratic equality that doesn't sidestep historically diff- derived differences. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. one has to work through those in order to achieve right. a kind of proper equality that's not just Non-normal, formal. Yeah. Right? It's mm-hmm. it, where it's actually a sort of substantive form of equality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think one of the reasons why. A kind of that the sort of the earlier form of universalism was so hollow is because it was about the transcendence of difference mm-hmm. and not right. about the working through, like mm. lived embodied differences in order to come to something that was more that's more equal. Does that make right. sense? Right.
0: Actually, maybe that's a good pivot to talk about my recallable book, which yeah, is basically a book from the moment of the guilt moment. <laughs> so the book that I was thinking of um, is Nicholas Lehman's The Big Test, mm. and I think it's mm-hmm. 1999, yeah. but his it's The Secret History of the American Meritocracy, and so it's about the SAT, and it's actually about, I mean, it's certainly about the... Um, privilege accorded to those old, to the old ivies, but also, as somebody mentioned earlier, the public ivies, like yeah. the way in which mm-hmm. places like University of Michigan and University of California also had a kind of um, hyper-porous screening mechanism that could draw people up into their world without fundamentally deranging the quality of the elite education they were offering. So it's just a fascinating... Mm-hmm. It, it For me, it helped me think about how the American paradigm of... You know public education has always had these internal differentiations in it. Um, but the thing that I wanted to say that relates to the guilt point is that it, you know, layman does do a good job of explaining how this kind of new access into privileged education came out of the post war American sense that somehow society had to be committed to democratic openness, mm-hmm. even though people weren't willing to right. allow that process to go completely, at least they had to sort of provide some kind of redemptive narrative yeah Mm -hmm. and so i guess in a way it's it's the case to be made for hypocrisy you know that (laughs) that hypocrisy does produce some you know some element of openness Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a it's just a fascinating and it's granular account of how these educational systems can change superficially in so many ways without changing behind the scenes right it's so worth reading
2: yeah 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 um There's another book uh, by this intellectual historian, John Carson. Mm. Um, It's called, um, I'm forgetting the title, The Measure of Merit. Mm. And it's a comparison of France and the U.S. Oh, Mm. I'd love to read that. Um, And and, and the sort of like the twist in it is that France is the the society, I suppose, that comes up with the IQ test, right? And the IQ test, um, becomes all the rage in the United States. It, get, it it. People pick it up and run with it. Yeah. You yeah. know because it's it's fits so well with um, ideologies of of individualism, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right? You know this idea of the kind of objective quantitative measurement of merit. Yeah. Uh, whereas it falls by the wayside in France, mm. right? Where you know sort of instit- where the sort of notion of institutions and kind of expert judgment. Um, Mm -hmm. is so powerful, right, Mm -hmm. Um, that the the test is not allowed to kind of stand in. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would be
1: an interesting... Yeah, that would be a great comparison. um, So mine is actually... Every time John does not bring up a 19th century novel, I feel that I must. Um, Great. And in this case, it is Phineas Finn, which is written by Anthony Trollope. It's one of the Palliser novels. Um, And I thought of it because, you know, Phineas Finn is a... um, member of the Irish gentry, but he's Catholic and he's Irish, which is also kind of Mm. marked, right? Mm. And he comes to London and he actually does very well, but there's a lot of conversation about him doing well, the reasons why he's doing well, even though he's Catholic and Irish, and there's quite a lot of sort of Mm. anti-Irish sentiment throughout Trollope's books. Um, And, you know, it, it comes down to these questions of breeding. He looks good in a coat. He knows how to hunt, um, a variety of ways in which he kind of displays his, um, capacity to join his merit, right? Mm. Um, and the other part of it that I found, um, interesting and relevant is that this is a time when not, um, tests to enter universities, but tests to enter the civil service are being, Mm. um, instituted Mm -hmm. so that it's not only, um you know, the children of the aristocracy or the gentry that are that are entering these things. And there's a lot of discussion. I mean, Trollope is really great about kind of bringing up these political questions sort of through the course of his plotting. And one of them is about the um, – and he's a little agnostic. Like, he's describing this as a kind of outrage, but there's mm-hmm. also a little bit of a feeling that he's mm-hmm. – he has a sort of sociological take on it as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, of sort of, you know – why the country is going to the dogs because Mm. now this Mm. exam is being... Institute. Mm. yeah there's gr- mm. and
0: there's a couple of great recent books one by jennifer ruth and one by lauren goodlad that are both accounts of basically the understanding of the profession and the career as diverging at this right, moment right. because the career is bureaucratically pegged to this kind of objective test mm-hmm. whereas yeah. the profession and something like doctor or lawyer would be the superb example of that has right. this kind of internalized merit account mm-hmm. like right. the doctor is doing things on their own they're somehow you mm-hmm. know away right, apart right, right. from that kind of yeah. um quantitative yeah. And then the other
1: part of it is the part It's the quality versus the quantity. Right? Yeah. yeah. Who is yeah. explicitly understood to not know what the hell he's doing. Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and to yeah. not have any merit. And yet, the idea that, you know, and, and they're sort of um, elected through these um you know, what are called rotten boroughs where it's like basically the squire's decision who's going to right. be elected to Parliament right. and then they go and yeah. they sit there and they don't, don't say anything for years on end. But yeah, this that's is quality. Still <laughs> Maybe as, that's a scripture sort of come to think this. of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a scripture <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's okay. really
0: helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's it actually yeah. I
1: think it connects to that sort of earlier phase in the St. Paul's book where it's kind of like... It's kind of understood that these people are fuck-ups and they, you know, don't ever go to class. They have a gentleman's C, right? And uh, they, you know, spend all their time getting drunk. And yet, that sort of and yet it has a bearing in some weird way. Right? That's the thing that we we are supposed to be preserving from the you know hordes that are (laughs) going to come over (laughs) the wall. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, yeah. that's so, there's so it's, many
0: campus novels that have that quality. I was actually thinking about Donna Tartt's Secret History, which you know is like my favorite campus novel. That, is a great that, that that the thing you think you're there for is not the thing you're actually there yeah. for. That it's okay. that it's uh, that it's oblique um, to the the, the the you know the putative um, certified reason for yeah. coming, and then there's that underneath reason yeah. right. which right, will right. be exactly. there right. which, yeah. And
1: the knowing of that secret yeah. is part of your belonging, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's more than nonchalance. That's something other than nonchalance.
2: And if you actually mistake one for the other... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the worst kind of naivete. Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah, That's when you really know you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) When you think what you're there for is the grade. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Exactly. Yeah. So mine um, is a... It's a memoir by a woman named Sujata Gidla, who's actually trained... She's a Dalit. And she's from a Christian Dalit family in South India. And she was trained as an engineer. She went to one of these regional engineering colleges, not the kind of top tier, but the, the next tier. Um, and also did um, um, was a kind of research scholar at IIT Madras mm-hmm. um, for a time. Mm-hmm. And now works, um, migrated to the U.S., and now works as a conductor in the New York City subway. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, and it's this... It's one of these stories which is the story of modern India. So the mm. subtitle is An Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India. Mm. And the title is Ants Among Elephants.
0: Wow, mm. that sounds great. Um, yeah. And it's
2: this remarkable story. And sort of the two, um, it's, when one could think of it as you know, the story of the post-independence period uh, from the vantage point of uh, a Dalit family's experience, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a kind of a multi generational mm-hmm. account of a Dalit family's mm-hmm. experience, and her so the two the two characters that really sort of jump out and that are kind of the stars of the story are her uncle, her maternal uncle, who um, uh, who ends up uh, being this kind of communist radical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is hell-bent on sort of organizing the peasantry for revolution, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he's also this incredibly complicated figure, right, who, you know, um, falls in love with a kind of upper-caste girl and is shunned by her and mm-hmm. just is a, you know, there's there's nothing sort of one-dimensional about mm-hmm. any of these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother is this really interesting character who um, who has a, Who's kind of forced into um, an arranged marriage, um, but is this is this is kind of the shining star on her horizon, and right makes it lines things up in such a way that she's afforded every possible opportunity, mm-hmm. right? And and it's this so, but she has this like really amazing way of talking about how caste, and especially to be a dalit, was inescapable, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That you know you you couldn't but be a dubted mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. um, yeah so the sort of uh aspiration to unmarking wasn't even thinkable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was not thinkable um, but she also says that you know it, when she it was only when she came to the United States that she thought of her story as a story, right mm-hmm. um so I mean that just it you a, a taste of it she says she starts my stories my family's stories were not stories in india they were just life
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: when i left and made new friends in a new country only then did the things that happened to my family the things we had done become stories mm-hmm. stories worth mm-hmm. telling stories worth kind of like writing Chris's down. Book, right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yes yeah. Yeah. and then the, it, each of these is a, is a paragraph okay then the next one yeah. is i was born in south india in a co- town called kazipet in the state yeah. of andhra pradesh next paragraph as born into a lower middle class family, my parents mm-hmm. were college lecturers. I was born in untouchable, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's it's a it's a kind of like coming to consciousness mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. but but one where she was always conscious, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's a it's quite remarkable, mm-hmm. and I've I've I haven't read anything like it. Wow, that sounds great. Um, That's great. Yeah. And there is a whole there's a whole tradition of uh, of the kind of Dalit memoir you know mm-hmm. there were there were sort of, there, were, there were precursors to this mm-hmm. um, that are kind of in the same vein mm. but there's something about hers which is almost more compelling because mm-hmm. it's it's so unsentimental mm-hmm. right um, and it's transnational right? right which gives it a kind of unique twist yeah
1: um, anyway so that's my recommendation yes, that's great thank you yeah okay with that we will say goodbye to Ajanta for the moment and thank you very much thank for you. this conversation Yes. And thank thank you, John. you so much. Yeah. Recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It is affiliated with Public Books and is recorded and edited in the Media Lab of the Brandeis Library by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden, and production assistance, including website design and social media, is done by Matthew Schratz and Kaliska Ross. Mark DeLello oversees and advises on all technological matters. And we appreciate the support of university librarian Matthew Sheehy and dean of arts and sciences Dorothy Hodgson and at the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly at ferry or at plots at brandeis.edu, or contact us via social media and our website. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review of us on iTunes, Stitcher, or elsewhere. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, including topics like love, deindustrialization, Polynesia, or some other angle altogether. Other episodes, which we're calling Recall This Book in Focus, include conversations with Samuel Delaney, Zadie Smith, Mike Lee, and more to come. And with that, thank you, and good day.